Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, A Step-by-Step Guide to Diagnosing SLE in the Primary Care Setting, is brought to you by the France Foundation and is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Your host is Dr. Matt Bernholtz. The timely diagnosis and treatment of systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE, is essential to preventing, or at least diminishing, the auto-inflammatory multi-system damage associated with this disease. Unfortunately, diagnosis is often delayed, sometimes for years, due to nonspecific signs and symptoms. So how can we more effectively assess our patients and get them to treatment faster? From the ReachMD studios in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, this is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And joining me to explore diagnostic and treatment planning updates from the perspectives of both primary and specialty care are Dr. Louis Koritsky and Dr. Robin Dorr. Dr. Koritsky is a family physician and assistant professor emeritus at the University of Florida School of Medicine. And Dr. Dorr is a practicing rheumatologist and professor of medicine at UCLA. Doctors, it's great to have you both on the program today. Thank you very much for having us today. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's start with a case study involving a patient named Felicia. So Felicia is an uninsured 31-year-old African-American mother of two who works as an Uber driver. She comes to Dr. Koritsky's office today reporting fatigue, arthralgia in multiple joints, muscle aches, painless oral ulcers, and moderately swollen cervical lymph nodes for the last three or four days. She's had two similar episodes over the past two years, but lab tests showed nothing remarkable at the time and both resolved on their own with the assistance of over-the-counter NSAIDs. She's been able to continue working as an Uber driver, but says the fatigue in particular makes it pretty tough, as she puts it, and she wonders why the symptoms keep coming back. So with that background, Dr. Koritsky, would you say Felicia's symptoms are consistent with lupus? And if so, what are the most important laboratory tests you'll order to confirm or rule out SLE? Initial test with uh, the, the ANA. We'd have this initial panel. 
like helpful on uh, Dr. Doris. Do you feel like that is enough initial information to get us going? Should I have done more, do you think, at this initial encounter? Or, or do you want to have more of the test in your hands when you see her and make a further decision? Please advise me about that. Two things I want to mention is, one, I would want a urinalysis to make certain that she doesn't have any uh, proteinuria or uh, red cell or white cell casts. If the urine was abnormal, then probably when I saw her, I would uh, order a double-stranded DNA antibody because that is typically positive in patients who have lupus nephritis. But if her urinalysis was normal and her comprehensive metabolic panel showed that she had normal renal function, the fact that she's uh, uninsured, I would not order that double-stranded DNA antibody. The other thing that's really important is that if she is told that she has a positive ANA, I'm sure you would just mention to her that the ANA is a screening test for autoimmune diseases, but that some medications and some patients have a positive ANA. So until she sees the rheumatologist, not to go online and assume that she has lupus because she has a positive ANA, but, but try to, to, to tell her that she might not, and certainly that the rheumatologist should be able to um, tell her if it is lupus, the severity, and what the prognosis might be. Because so many patients uh, are so concerned that they have lupus when they only have a positive ANA, and most of the ANAs that I see in referral, the patients don't end up having lupus. Well, thanks for that advice. I, I do see the situation describing more often in primary care since we're more commonly using, for instance, some medications like hydralazine, and then their ANA comes back positive and they worry they have a dread disease. So I'm glad you're reminding me that we need to pay attention to the propriety of the ANA and not jump to conclusions based solely upon that. The other thing I didn't mention was you need to have an ANA tighter because otherwise the ANA will just come back positive or negative. And for when the rheumatologist sees the patient, you want to know what the ANA titer is, whether it's 1 to 80, which is minimally positive, 1 to 160, which is more positive, and that, again, can give me an idea of if I need to order any other tests or to help with talking about the prognosis. What about the ANA pattern? The only thing I've seen in the literature consistently is that centromere pattern is one that's least likely to be associated with lupus. Does the the ANA pattern type really make a difference to us? To me, it does. Um, and again, if it's, it's a homogeneous pattern, that is much more likely to be lupus. If it's a speckled pattern, that's more likely to be some other um, autoimmune disease. And when they give you that titer, they will give you the pattern that counts as the one that's the highest titer. So let's say at 1 to 80, it was homogeneous, but at 1 to, to 160, it was speckled, then it's the highest titer pattern that tends to tell us more about the disease. You both bring up interesting points. Dr. Dora, I want to come back to you on this concept of the tests that we need to consider. What about tests that are unnecessary or unhelpful from your vantage point? As I mentioned, I would not order again because she doesn't have insurance. I wouldn't order that double-stranded DNA antibody to begin with. I would wait and see what her uh, GFR and, and urinalysis showed. The other thing that can really add up cost is if you ask for a lupus panel, and then they will be testing for for scleroderma, for Sjogren's, for rheumatoid arthritis, for mixed connective tissue disease, and that initial ANA, uh, the cost might triple or quadruple by getting that whole panel. 
So for someone who doesn't have insurance, I want the basic things that we've talked about. And then if necessary, I can pick and choose. That's excellent. Thank you. So let's advance Felicia's case now and say that her lab tests show the following. So her ANA comes back positive. C4 is low at 10 milligrams per deciliter. And her white blood cell count is also low. All other tests are normal, however. So, Dr. Kuritsky, starting with you again, do these findings satisfy a diagnosis of lupus? And would you look to consult with a rheumatologist such as Dr. Dorr to confirm the diagnosis in this case? Well, I still would refer to Dr. Dorr for confirmation, even though the patient, I think, should be at this point given a provisional diagnosis of lupus because she fulfills either the SLICC or the ACR criteria. Uh, According to SLICC, you need to have four of 17 criteria of which at least one has to be a clinical criteria and another has to be an immunologic criteria. The immunologic criteria are really our laboratory markers, the ANA, double-stranded DNA, antiphospholipid antibodies, complement levels, Coombs test. Clinical criteria are the things that a patient came reporting to us, cutaneous changes, hair loss, ulcers in the oropharynx or nose, joint pain, serositis, evidence of renal disease, as Dr. Dorr mentioned earlier, neurologic findings, anemia, low white count, thrombocytopenia. So a patient already does fulfill criteria by the SLICC criteria, and the ACR are, for, are fairly fim- similar. Based upon that, I would, what I would say as a primary care clinician is I'd say you do fulfill the criteria for the diagnosis, that it's going to be a diagnosis that you will have to wrestle with for, for much of the rest of your life from time to time. I want to have an expert in this disease see you also for the advanced therapies beyond the things I can initially give you. You're going to need to have a strong relationship with your rheumatologist as well as me. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Dorr, would you want to weigh in on that regarding the uh, referral, the diagnosis, um, what might be preferable or necessary from your vantage point? Definitely from my vantage point, since uh, she meets the criteria, both through the, uh, the SLIC criteria and the ACR, she should be seen and evaluated by the rheumatologist so that the rheumatologist would be able to you know, discuss the diagnosis of lupus, talk about what the, the different therapies are, and then really uh, with the shared decision-making between the primary care clinician, myself, and the patient, uh, talk about what we feel would be the best starting therapy for her, and and then uh, deciding the, the follow-up between the primary care clinician and the rheumatologist. So I'll say she has lupus, so maybe we need to put her on low doses of prednisone uh, and some hydroxychloroquine. And it's important that I communicate with Dr. Karitsky because I think the patient is going to say, well, Dr. Karitsky, I've never seen Dr. Dorr before, and I don't really know her, but I trust that you sent me to her, which is good, but I want to make certain that you agree with this treatment plan. So it's very important that there's a buy-in because if the, if, if the patient, the primary care clinician, and the rheumatologist all agree on the treatment plan, that the adherence and compliance is going to be so much better Dr. Dorr mentioned something that I think is really important for this patient's future. Uh, prior to the internet, when it wasn't easy for patients to access information, then we were really handing the information in one direction from clinician to patient. But now it's clearly bi or tri-directional, sometimes with the information being inaccurate and sometimes accurate. I think an important element for this patient, because it's frightening to get a diagnosis of lupus, and many people have heard of it, and they know that it is definitely not 
good news is to instill reassurance and hopefulness. Because what we can tell this patient, and what I would say to her at the outset is, we're going to have a long-term relationship, you and I, you and your rheumatologist, and the good news is we have a diversity of treatments that usually make patients much better. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm speaking with Drs. Louis Karitsky and Robin Dorr about diagnostic and management considerations for SLE. So we've been focusing on our patient, Felicia, here, um, who has just been diagnosed with SLE. But I want to come back to Dr. Karitsky on the, the question whether her presentation is fairly typical from your point of view. Well, yes, I think her presentation was fairly typical. She's a, a young person and she is female, and she's African-American. And those are all signals that increase the likelihood of, with similar symptoms, that her diagnosis is going to be lupus. It's not always so obvious, and people can sometimes mask their symptoms. Sometimes they'll live with them for a while, and the symptoms go away. They say, oh, it was nothing. So she may have written off what her symptoms are, thinking that they're not something important, but they are, and we want, don't want disease progression to occur. I think most primary care clinicians would recognize this presentation as lupus, but that's a gift that we don't always get. We get persons who are lesser likely to have it, males less likely. We get persons who are absent any skin manifestations, and we get persons like, for instance, Asian Americans or Hispanic Americans in whom the disease is not nearly so obvious. Well, you bring up a, a great uh, opening here to maybe bring Dr. Dora into the uh, subject and maybe ask about some of the less typical patients where the diagnosis might actually get missed. Dr. Dora, what are your thoughts? Well, certainly from my point of view, Felicia is really a, a, a classic case. I am most concerned if I see an African-American male who has lupus because typically their disease is more severe. We frequently see... Um, central nervous system involvement or renal involvement. And unfortunately, sometimes the thinking is, well, lupus doesn't occur in men. Well, lupus can certainly occur in men, and we don't want to miss that because we want to aggressively treat all the patients. The other place I think it's very important is in the, the older patients. There are over 100 different medications that can cause drug-induced lupus. And if I see an older patient, let's say they were having the fatigue that Dr. Kritsky mentioned, and they have some joint pain, and they're on one of the many or maybe more than one of the many medicines that can cause drug-induced lupus, most of the uh, antihypertensive medicines, the antiarrhythmic medicines, the uh, statins can all cause positive ANAs. That's going to be a person that I'm going to, to order an antihistone antibody on because that should be positive in someone who has drug-induced lupus. And then the most important thing we want to do at that point is, again, work with the primary care clinician and see if the patient can be tapered off that medication that uh, uh, causes the drug-induced lupus. So if we come back to our patient, Felicia, who's presentation is more uh, fairly typical representative of lupus. Dr. Kritsky, what are the next steps then? Would you start treatment right away? Well, I think our patient is suffering a very substantial symptom burden. I would actually probably at this point uh, call the rheumatologist and say, my intention is, unless you can see this patient within the next week, to give her prednisone, a small dose, no more than 10 to 20 milligrams a day, and until she's able to see you. There are some clinicians 
clinicians who will feel comfortable based upon their provisional diagnosis to use hydroxychloroquine. But in most environments in the United States, we'd rather her see the rheumatologist first and make sure that the, the treatment uh, intervention by the rheumatologist is in such short order that she doesn't have to take more than the briefest course of steroids, certainly no more than one to two weeks at the most, because likely she's going to be encountering steroids on a repetitive basis throughout her lifespan. We want to minimize the toxicity to the bone if we can by getting more appropriate first-line therapies engaged as soon as possible. So I'd like to close our conversation with uh, a question about monitoring patients like Felicia at this point going forward. So once she started treatment, how would you both assess her response to that treatment and monitor her symptoms? And would you see her at defined intervals, you know, checking for particular signs? So Dr. Dora, let me start with you on that. I would agree that in this patient, unless she can get into the rheumatologist very quickly, that she does need to be started on the steroids because of that low complement. And that means that her lupus uh, is probably more active than someone who has a normal serum complement level. So once I would see her, I would probably add hydroxychloroquine to make so we can uh, try to limit the dose of the steroids because they not only affect the bone but also increase cardiovascular risk in these patients. At that point, I would want to to see the patient back in uh, probably three months. I would ask the primary care clinician to see the patient back in four to six weeks. Again, trying to be careful with the insurance, but checking the, the CBC, the CMP, the urinalysis, and at this time, checking that serum complement. And if it's still low, then I'm going to need to see the patient again and, and probably talk about adding something like azathioprine or mycophenolate to, to try to make certain that that complement level becomes normal because that low complement is associated with more aggressive disease. And Dr. Kritsky, what about you? What's your vantage point from the primary care side of things? A patient's going to need to be seen on an ongoing basis. When her disease is quiescent, unless it's for other health maintenance issues, probably every six months is going to be fine. But until her disease is stabilized, I think she's going to need to be seen at a minimum every three months. Now, many of the decisions are going to be in the hands of the rheumatologist, but I want to go and give her ongoing education about her disease. Make sure that she reduces her cardiovascular risk because it's elevated from baseline with exercise, appropriate diet, and avoidance of toxins like cigarette smoking. Uh, primary care clinicians may be interested to learn that sunscreen is an important intervention because sunlight exacerbates the disease, and we want to make sure this patient is appropriately vaccinated. So sometimes patients, when they get a major primary diagnosis, that seems to be the loudest noise in the clinical room. Her lupus is important, but she has other life issues that are just as important that require the same maintenance as we provide for any other patient without lupus, as well as the areas of heightened risk like cardiovascular and renal disease. Well, with those takeaways in mind, I very much want to thank my guests, Dr. Robin Dorr and Louis Koritsky, for helping walk through this patient case and in the process defining best practices in diagnostic and treatment planning for lupus patients. Doctors, it was fantastic speaking with both of you today. Thank you very much for asking us to present this information. Thank you for allowing me to participate in this educational experience. To receive your free CME credit or to view other activities in this series, go to reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.